I will say a few words about our speaker. We will go right into the topic. We've got a lot to learn. I've actually read up on these people, and I knew nothing about them. So I assume many of you in the room uh, know as much as I do about the subject. But when you leave in about an hour, you will be richly um, rewarded with education. Okay, retired as art historian from the faculty of the prestigious Otis College of Art and Design, as well as from her position as longtime lecturer at the Orange County Art Museum, Dr. Jean S. M. Willette has extensively published her own research in respected art journals, art exhibition catalogs, and art critical writings. She's the author publisher of two websites, Art History Unstuffed and The Arts Blogger. She has an incredible range and depth of knowledge, but most importantly, as a gifted teacher, Dr. Jean always manages to draw your attention to a way of looking at some aspect of work or the socio-cultural ideas that supports that work that you probably wouldn't have seen on your own. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Jean S. M. Willette on the topic, Modern Artists and Jewish Art Dealers. Thank you very much. I just want to thank Ari uh, for, uh, you know, uh, for the nice introduction and for welcoming here, me here today, and thanks for the great support system uh, as well. Uh, this is the first time I've spoken uh, to your organization, and I'm delighted to be here sharing uh, your lunch hour with you. Uh, I wanted to give you a little sense of uh, who uh, I am and what I do, the way I do my work, uh, because I haven't spoken here before, uh, just to give you a little bit of orientation. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, Jewish art dealers in Berlin. And I'll tell you right now, when uh, Ari said, talk about Jewish art dealers in Berlin, I'm like, okay, fine. However, this is a huge topic. So I'll tell you right now, uh, we have only an hour, and when we get to the end of the hour, I'll tell you what we did not talk about, because it's going to be a huge amount that we will not be able to talk about, because there's no time. However, I'm also uh, getting Ari to send all of you a PDF of this lecture, uh, so you can see all of the images. At at some point, uh, I will be able to give you a complete bibliography uh, of this talk, uh, but this is a, uh, or a study that, for me, is still uh, in process. At the moment, I'm writing a book on the avant-garde, rewriting it from what we could call uh, the perspective of cultural studies. Uh, one of the things I do uh, when I study art history is that I ask questions. I ask questions that are stupid, I ask questions that are small, I ask questions that are large, and it always sends me off on a journey, a chain of uh, reactions that sends me to learn more things than I didn't know before. This is a particularly interesting field for me uh, because it began when I started asking questions. And uh, if we could go forward, uh, just one area. Thank you. Uh, one of the questions that uh, I wanted to know is about orthodox art history. Now go to any university, any college, any classroom that's teaching modern art history, and you're going to get the same story. Uh, and it's a good story. Uh, it's dramatic. You've got heroes. You've got villains. And it, it works very, very well. Uh, as we know, uh, the history of avant-garde art, i.e. modern art, uh, from between 1850 and 1914, which is where 
avant-garde ends with the Great War uh, happens in Paris. Paris is the center of the art world uh, from, the 16, from the 17th century on, from the 1600s, and in the 19th century and early 20th century, it was the heart and soul of art making uh, for Europe. If you were a serious artist, of course, you'd go to Paris. Uh, and this is where modern art is born, in this very, very modern city of Paris. Now, the story, the way that it's told, the way it's very, very familiarly presented is that uh, in Paris uh, from 1850 to 1914, there is a struggle between the avant-garde and academic art. So if we move forward one, thank you very much. Now, academic art is always presented as the villain. Uh, it is uh, retrograde artists who didn't understand the present, much less the future. Uh, they were banal. Uh, their uh, topics and subject matter were insipid, mere entertainment, etc., etc., etc. And the way that the story is told is that these people are the historical losers. Uh, uh, during their day, they were rich, they were famous, they were riding high, everyone loved them, they were enormously popular. However, uh, truth will out, as we all know, and these academic artists wound up in the basements of museums. However, there are people like me who happen to love academic art. It is beautiful, it is exquisitely painted, it's highly entertaining. It's like television or the movies, who can complain? Uh, and uh, I'm delighted to see that it's become more respectable. It's something that people are actually going back since the 80s uh, to study once again. However, that's the story. So if these are the villains like Cabanal, who's telling us this amazing story of Cleopatra, who wanted just the right poison so she could kill herself uh, dramatically and hopefully painlessly. So she tests all the poisons on these prisoners to see who suffers the least. It's a great story. We really like it. Who can complain? Uh, now, when I uh, would ask my students at Otis, I would say, okay, you have two choices. It's like 1860, you're in Paris, you have skills, you have talent, and you can be an avant-garde artist and eat maybe two or three times a week. And if you live to be 90, you can live long enough to become famous or uh, you can become an academic artist, do what they tell you, follow the rules, become rich and famous and live in a big house. Which do you wanna do? They all want to be academic artists. No one wants to be an avant-garde artist. So we go ahead one, Ari, thank you very much. Uh, the avant-garde artists are surrounded in this mythos, this ethos of we suffered for our art, uh, we went hungry. And some of them did, in fact, uh, Monet ate off the table scraps from Renoir's family. So there was suffering uh, involved, uh, but in the end, they won. Uh, for some of these avant-garde artists, uh, the end didn't come soon enough. They were long dead and couldn't enjoy their triumph, but never mind. Uh, as we know, truth shall out. So this is the story. We're all very familiar with it. Uh, we know how poor uh, Paul Gauguin wound up in the Marquesas, uh, died of syphilis and drug addiction and despair and God knows what. Uh, and he's recognized only uh, sometime after 1903 
and once again, doesn't live to enjoy it. Uh, these, are, these are very sad, dramatic stories. However, my question was, and if we go forward one, uh, thank you very much, Ari. Uh, okay, fine, but let me ask a really basic, stupid question. If they lived and most of them died in obscurity without ever being recognized or appreciated, how come we know their names? Something had to intervene so that we know who these people are. Because if you're avant-garde, if you know your history of Bohemia in France, uh, you know that most of the Bohemians, most of the avant-garde people, lived and died in obscurity. Most of them didn't even stick around. There was a high attrition rate. They went home, back to the provinces somewhere in France or where, what have you, uh, took a job in daddy's grocery store, and lived happily after. Only the few survived. Why? How did this happen? One answer we know is that avant-garde artists from the 1870s on, uh, after the installation of the Third Republic in France, uh, were able to find alternative sources of support. Uh, we see the uh, beautiful painting by uh, Claude Monet. Uh, this is the Boulevard des Capucins, and this is the site where the Impressionists had their first exhibition in 1874 in Nadar's vacant studio, uh, and uh, the uh, Impressionists managed to get an art dealer, uh, art dealers, plural, who were able uh, to somehow uh, salvage their careers and uh, show their art. Uh, this is the solution that uh, the uh, artists who were the renegades, the avant-garde artists, had uh, in showing their work elsewhere uh, in their own exhibition uh, agencies, in their own salons later on at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, so can we go forward, uh, Ari? Yeah, okay, good, good, thank you very much. Now, why did they have to do this? And this is important because the avant-garde artists were truly shut out. They were despised, they were disliked. The art establishment in Paris did not like them, had no intention of liking them, uh, disliked everything they stood for, they broke the rules, they showed us things that no one wanted to look at, it wasn't entertaining, uh, we didn't like the way they painted, and so forth and so on. The Academic circles had been forced to accept Courbet, and they choked on him. He kind of stuck in their throats. Uh, go ahead, one. And then when they got to Manet, it was like, no, not today, not tomorrow, not now, not ever. We are not accepting any of these people, period. So if we go ahead one, we realize, to our astonishment, that at the end of the 1890s, 25 years after the Impressionists began showing their work, the very fine uh, Impressionist artist, Gustav Kayabat, who was independently wealthy and was able to buy a lot of Impressionist paintings, uh, died. And he left a huge and wondrous collection to the state of, of France. And, and the state said, no, we don't want this stuff. It's Impressionism. We don't like it. We don't want it. And Renoir sat with the authorities of the Louvre for years. And finally, the Louvre said, OK, OK, we'll take some. We'll take 38. And we put them in the Musée uh, du Luxembourg. OK, fine. Of course, a couple of decades later, the Louvre recognized its mistake. 
and not taking all of the Kayabat legacy. And they went back to the Kayabat family and they said, hello, uh, excuse us, we'd like to take the rest of the collection that you offered us. And the Kayabat said, no, so sorry, they're all sold. Hmm. Sold where? To who? Who is buying Impressionists? Well, uh, that is the question. Who is buying these people? We can tell you for sure, it's not the French. The French have no desire to buy avant-garde art, no intention of supporting it ever. Somebody somewhere out there is supporting these artists, and we know their names, otherwise uh, they would have just simply vanished from history. So where did the art go? And this is kind of unexpected. Uh, the art uh, actually went to a very few galleries. This is point number one, stop number one, uh, at the Rue Lafitte. All along the Rue Lafitte, there were a number of galleries. You could go to the Burnham Jaune, and you could find uh, avant-garde art, French avant-garde art. But would you buy it? No, if you were French, you would not. But this is just like a storage depot uh, for modern French avant-garde art. There was going to be a next step down the road. Thank you very much. What happens is that the French avant-garde art is not bought in France. It's sold in France, but it's not purchased in France. It goes to three countries. Now, the Impressionist art dealer, Paul Duell, would have liked to have sold to the French, but the French aren't buying. Who's buying? The Americans. The Americans will buy anything. If you just say it's French, they will buy it. They don't care if it's avant-garde. They don't care uh, if it's uh, academic. They buy everything. We have a huge assortment of bourgeois in America. We also have magnificent collections of avant-garde French art. This work also goes to Russia, as we shall see in a minute, and it goes to Germany. So just imagine, this is one of the most exciting and productive times in the production of art, literally in the history of art for these decades. And all of it is leaving France. And it's going away forever. So when you go to Paris and you go to the Musée d'Orsay and you see French Impressionism, thank Cayabat. They could have had more. Uh, it goes and it goes east. And it goes there forever. And as we all know, this is going to have extraordinary consequences. So this, this was my question in starting. Wait a minute. Um, if you have this war between academia, academic art, the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, and the self-taught, self-made artist of the avant-garde, then what are the consequences of this? Because when you have a war, there are consequences, and this is the consequence. The art leaves France, and it goes forever. Where does it go? Well, uh, the French aren't going to buy it, so uh, it goes, for example, uh, to Sergei Shashukin. 
Shashukin gets on the train that goes between Moscow and Paris, and he will go into the artist's studios, he will go into the galleries, and he will scoop up French art. The canvases aren't even dry yet. Whisks it out of Paris, and it goes to Russia. Now, just a little aside, because we kind of know how this story in Russia is going to end. By the time of the Russian Revolution, uh, just after the Great War is over, this art will be put in storage by the Soviets, and it will not be seen again until after the war. Just gone. Safe, but gone. That's good. The safe part is excellent. The other place it goes is Germany. It seems to be an excellent, excellent place to sell avant-garde art. But why Germany? Now, a lot of this art goes to Berlin. Now, Berlin is the center of a huge art market in Germany. So why Berlin? And who is selling this art? And who are the buyers? Because we have understood it's not going to be the French. So what's going on in Germany that allows this art to be sold there? OK, thank you. Now, answers to this question are kind of complicated because the people that are buying this art are Jewish art dealers for the most part. I'm not saying they're not exceptions, but I am saying the trade in avant-garde art is dominated by Jewish art dealers. Uh, and the people that we're going to be talking about today uh, are Paul Cassira and uh, his cousin Bruno Cassira. Now, Bruno is the publisher, and Paul is uh, the art uh, person. Uh, so the Germans take up the cause of French avant-garde art. But it's not all the Germans, is it? Oh, no. It's a very, very specific group of Germans. OK. Uh, and what we have is an interesting phenomenon. It's going to be mirrored uh, in Vienna. You're going to see exactly the same situation in Vienna, which was one of the cities that I offered to speak on when Ari and I were discussing what to do today. Same situation, exactly. Jewish patrons of avant-garde art, period. Jewish patrons. Generally speaking, no one else. So what we have is two worlds uh, by the end of the 19th century in Germany. One, there is the official world of German art that is controlled by the state, that is supported by the state, uh, that everyone in Germany uh, likes and admires. Uh, these are uh, occupied spaces. And I want to talk a little bit about occupied spaces in Germany. We could do the same thing in, in Vienna as well. So avant-garde art was an unoccupied space. And if you are a member of society that is considered to be not part of the mainstream, then where do you go for economic opportunities? You go to places that are unoccupied. Because this is an empire. It is an empire that is going to be closed to many people who want to get in to the inner sanctum of the empire. So we have 
a whole tradition of uh, Jewish sponsors of culture. Uh, the last picture we saw, I'm sorry, I should have said that. It was, um, thank you, it was a concert by Schubert, uh, and he's giving a concert in Berlin, and this concert is sponsored by Jewish women who are supporting uh, culture. Uh, thank you, uh, sir. Uh, so this is the situation. Now, this is very much like what goes on in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You can make the same uh, you know, uh, statement about England. If you were born into the nobility, the aristocracy, you have land, and you get rents from your tenants, you're wealthy. Good, excellent. That means that you are nobility. So you serve in the military, uh, you serve in the government, and uh, that's it. You kind of control things. It's an empire. That's what you do. Uh, you're the aristocracy. You have money. You don't need to do anything else. However, the culture changes. And as we know, the end of the uh, 18th and early part of the 19th century, you begin to see industrialization. Now, these are areas, business, industrialization, the professions, law, medicine, academia, where the nobility is not going to go. Who gets to go to unoccupied spaces? Once again, the Jewish population will go there. Over the centuries, there is enough capital that has come together so that uh, you could educate usually the young men, uh, there's enough capital to set up business. There's enough capital to start industries. So fine, uh, the aristocracy doesn't care. It looks down on these people who are in trade, who do business. But as you get into the 20th century, it becomes increasingly evident, wait a minute, we're not part of this, and they are. And what they are in charge of is the wheelhouse of the entire economy. Not good. However, uh, it's very hard for people to change. Uh, so uh, the aristocracy has no intention of changing. Uh, they like the way things are. They're in charge. They're the ones who sort out what the art world should be. And slowly but surely, while they're not watching, not looking, not paying attention, very important professions are beginning to be held by Jewish people, including what's going on in avant-garde art. Now, Willem II uh, is uh, willing, uh, as everyone would be, to take advantage of the technological prowess that is just beginning to enter uh, Germany. Germany has not been industrial before, and it's suffering uh, a culture shock. Uh, and uh, so he is working very, very hard to control and contain all of these changes, particularly in the art world. He intervened uh, proactively and frequently in the art world to make things turn out the way he wants. Because who are the most powerful people in the uh, kingdom? Artists and writers, absolutely. So he's gonna control that particular ground. Thank you very much. Now complicating this issue, 
Germany is a new nation. It comes together as one nation dominated by Prussia in 1871 with the founding of the German Empire. The German Empire was founded on the bones of the French defeat of the Franco-Prussian War. Now the French know exactly who they are. The Germans do not. So, how do they define themselves? Were they going to define themselves against the French? Why the French? Because the French, even though they were roundly defeated in the Franco-Prussian War, they had to pay huge reparations. They were occupied by the Germans. They paid off the reparations in three years and got rid of the Germans and stood up again and were not properly subdued. The Germans were not pleased. And so they increasingly defined themselves against the French. Now this is an interesting situation because if you're defining yourself against the French, then the last thing you want is an invasion of French art. However, that's where the avant-garde art is, and this is a whole territory you've left unguarded. Now, on the other hand, the French feel the same way about the Germans. The Germans are invading French art, uh, and there were German art dealers in Paris, like Daniel Henry Kahnweiler, who dealt with Picasso and Brock, etc., the Cubist. Why were they in Paris? Because they wanted to sell French art to the Germans. Who better than someone who spoke German? So the French are very suspicious, all of these Germans uh, in Paris. And, and uh, then the Germans on their side, who are all these French coming in? So there's kind of this cross-pollution that rouses national anxieties, and the art world becomes a proxy battleground for the uh, fumes of the Franco-Prussian War that are still you know, kind of pungent in the air. So for, um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so here you have uh, not only uh, places and spaces for the Jewish art dealers to go, but you also have places and spaces for Jewish patrons to go as well. Keep in mind, there is now a very, very wealthy class of Jewish people in Berlin who can absolutely afford to A, be art dealers because you're not going to sell a whole lot of art. You need to be patient. It's going to take time. And B, there are so wealthy patrons who will buy this art. But keep in mind, you're in a very dangerous territory because the emperor does not like anything French. One of the main uh, collectors of Impressionist art anywhere besides America is the Bernstein family. This is Carl and, Carl and Felici uh, Bernstein. Unfortunately, uh, there's no portrait of Felici. She was photographed, but for whatever reason, uh, she was never uh, painted, which is rather odd, because the Bernsteins uh, were great uh, supporters of art in Berlin. So I'm sure if she wanted to be, she could be. This is their, uh, one of their music rooms, and you can see uh, there's Impressionism uh, hanging on the walls. This is one of the most important collections of Impressionism anywhere, anywhere.
Uh, the next most important collections would probably, oddly enough, be in Europe. So these were very, very generous and open people. Like Shushukin in Moscow, uh, they invited artists to come to their salons and look at the Impressionist art, which they go to Paris to get. They are related to the editor of the Gazette de Beaux-Arts in Paris, and they are fluent in French. So it's easy, they just go in, they buy a lot of art, bring it back to Germany, and the artists come in. One of whom is Max Liebermann. Now, Liebermann also is an extremely wealthy artist from a very wealthy family. So there's, uh, we're talking about people with money. This is the whole lecture is about people with a lot of money. Don't assume that every Jewish person in Berlin is rich because they are not. That's just who we're talking about today. At any rate, Lieberman comes into uh, the Bernstein Salon and he is blown away by Impressionism. And he also becomes a buyer of Impressionism. And he is able to amass an equally large and impressive collection of Impressionists who, keep in mind, are not welcomed in France even at the end of the 19th century. So here's a quote. Um, this is the uh, director of the Hamburg uh, Kunsthalle. And he says, as far as I know, there was only one individual in Germany who uh, collected contemporary French Impressionist painting, and that was Dr. Bernstein in Berlin. Uh, Bernstein was, um, uh, he, he was a lawyer, and you know, he's you know, it's a, a doctor of laws. That's what you're looking at. Uh, very beautiful and amazing collection. Now. I also want to draw your attention to Hugo, Hugo von uh, Schutte. Now, Schutte uh, is also very, very interested in Impressionism, and he is absolutely aware that something is happening, uh, and it's called modern life, and it is producing modern art. Thank you very much. So Schutte and Lieberman, in their own ways, set out to affect huge changes in the art world in Berlin. Now, Liebermann does a portrait of Dr. Carl Bernstein here. And uh, in return, he's given this beautiful painting of a bouquet of peonies uh, as, as a gift, uh, from, uh, and it's by Manet. Uh, it's very, very lovely. One of the things I want to mention, uh, mention as, as we're going on, uh, every time you see an image from now on, I've made a real effort to be sure that this is not just a Manet. Uh, painting of uh, flowers. This is the Manet. I've looked up the provenance of everyone uh, that uh, I've shown you, so I've tried to be as authentic as possible. So this is this cherished possession of Liebermann who begins to collect Impressionism. Thank you so much. Now, the Bernsteins invited everyone, including uh, Adolf uh, Menzel. Now, Menzel, I happen to like him. Again, I like academic artists. I have no problem with them at all. He's a beautiful painter, uh, really, really interesting things. Uh, however, he is academic, and he does not like what the Bernsteins are showing. He's horrified. So here's this artist approaching these wealthy, cultivated, intellectual, brilliant people, and he's like, hmm. 
Um, don't tell me. Uh, you paid money for this trash? And, and then he realizes, okay, wait a minute, I'm a guest, they're the host, uh, <clears throat> maybe I should try to sound a little bit nicer. And so he says, uh, excuse me for speaking my mind, but I have to tell you, this art is horrible, <laughs> horrible. So, okay, fine, not everyone is going to like this, and uh, Adolf Menzel uh, did not like it. This, I love this, this is a ball. Uh, in Berlin. These are the aristocrats having fun uh, in their aristocrat outfits and they're having like a snack. I love it the way he's captured them having a snack at the ball. It's kind of a buffet. Okay, thank you, Eric. Uh, now, so we have uh, the establishment that does not like this invasion of French art. These impressionists who paint badly, uh, who have no skills, and you know they're showing things that we absolutely do not want to look at. Nevertheless, Schutte is now the director of the National Gallery in Berlin. Uh, when you've been to Berlin, this is the uh, Alta Pinakothek. This is the old uh, Pinakothek, the old uh, gallery, the old National Gallery. Uh, but when he uh, took over this job, it was new. Uh, he was the director, and he was going to expand uh, the uh, definition of art beyond that which was going on in Germany. So what he did, he uh, collected, uh, showed, displayed conventional German academic art to please uh, the conventional German academic people, i.e. the emperor, and he seeded it with the French, like Delacroix, Corot, the Impressionist, what have you. He was the first museum director to buy a Cezanne anywhere. So this is someone who is way ahead of his time. Now the emperor, he doesn't know much about art, but by God, he knows what he likes. And he says, uh, all art passing over the laws and bounds defined by me is no longer art. It is factory work. It is industrial. And art must never be that etc., etc. Thank you, Eric. So uh, here is uh, Schutte. I wish I you know, could have a better uh, portrait of him, but this, sometimes it's really hard to find uh, you know, good uh, examples of what you want to see. So um, <coughs> when uh, Carl Bernstein died in 1908, uh, his wife, Felice, uh, left the entire Impressionist collection to uh, the National Gallery. And, and Schutte says, thank you. Thank you. This is an amazing gift. And the Kaiser stepped in and said, you're fired. That's it. You are leaving. Uh, so that was the end of Schutte uh, at the National uh, Gallery. And he dies in 1911. He gets another uh, job, but you know he dies in 1911. And um, he doesn't live, thank you, Ari, uh, long uh, to see uh, what's coming next. Now, this is a little peek uh, at the uh, Bernstein uh, collection. Uh, this is uh, the in the Winter Garden uh, by Manet. Uh, you should recognize it. Uh, it'd be interesting for you to know uh, that during World War II, right at the end, uh, somewhere between 1944 and 45, right at the end of the war, uh, the Germans decided to move this 
and they stowed it for safekeeping in the Merkel mines uh, where it was discovered uh, by the Americans. So eventually it became beloved. This was one example of the magnificent works uh, in the Bernstein uh, collection. Another one, uh, uh, thank you, Ari, uh, is a beautiful painting by Cezanne. Uh, and this is just, you know, this is a scene in Pontoise uh, that was also uh, in the collection. It's just absolutely lovely. So here's the emperor. And, and he's hearing about Shudi, uh, who's buying all this art. And so he decides he's going to visit the National Gallery. So he pays a visit to Shudi, who is awaiting anxiously uh, because uh, he has Cezanne's in the collection. And he decides before the emperor gets there to hide the Cezanne's take them off the wall, and the emperor comes in, and he looks at the impressionist, and he says, well, these people are really boring. Never mind, all I'm asking you to do is don't put them on the first floor where everybody has to look at them when they come in, put them on the second floor, we'll be fine, and off he goes. Uh, and then Shooty whisks out the Cezanne and sticks him back up on the wall. Uh, like I said, uh, Bat didn't last long because when the Bernstein collection came to the National Gallery, that was it for the emperor. Okay, enough is enough. Too much Impressionism, too much. So this particular impression, this in particular Impressionist collection is going to have a huge impact upon German artists. Because German artists, like the French artists, are beginning to understand this is the 20th century. We are coming there. Uh, and uh, we're living in a modern world with a modern way of life. And we're living in an urban setting. Uh, we're not living in a history painting anymore. Uh, the classical era is over. We need to paint who we are, what we are doing. And Impressionism essentially gave them uh, permission to do that. And Max Liebermann uh, is one uh, of the leaders. Now, there's a problem here, uh, because you're looking at a quarrel between French civilization and German culture. We all know what French civilization is. Uh, it is uh, the French thinking they're uh, the center of the art world, uh, whether it's fashion or painting or what have you. They've always felt this way. They did then, they do now. Not a problem. Culture in Germany, with a K, is something a little bit different. Uh, this is not fashion, it's not changing fads, this is something that is eternal. It's very specifically German, it's materialistic, uh, it doesn't change with time, uh, it is eternal values that only the Germans, the Kaiser think, has remembered. These are spiritual values. Everyone else has forgotten them as they rush madly into the modern world. So here is this uh, battle, literally, of cultures and civilizations. And Impressionism uh, is in the midst of this battlefield because it's coming out of Paris where no one wants it and is coming in to Berlin. Uh, now, <coughs> excuse me, Liebermann has an impressive collection of Impressionists. 17 Manet paintings. One is a watercolor. Everything else is an oil. That is 
amazing. Understand, you cannot get the French to buy MNA. No way. And look at what's going on uh, in Germany. And because of the Bernsteins and Liebermann, other museums around Germany begin to say, oh, I think we'll buy some of this too. And they give permission. Uh, we see uh, uh, Impressionist start showing up in Hamburg and Bremen, Frankfurt, Stuttgart, Hagen, and so forth and so on. They all begin collecting French avant-garde art. Into this rather volatile mix of politics, culture, step the Casiris. This Paul and his cousin Bruno. Uh, now, first of all, uh, the Casira family is one of the most illustrious and brilliant families in Germany, period. These are amazing people. Uh, they, they, are, they are musicians, they are conductors, they are uh, doctors, they are academics. Uh, they are very, very, very rich. So these uh, cousins uh, decide what they're going to do is they're going to support the artists in Berlin who want to support Impressionism. So just to let you know, here's a family picture <laughs> of the Casiras. I found it on the web. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of it was you know who are these people? We know some of them. We don't know all of them. Uh, so the, it was it was kind of a call uh, to help us you know identify uh, some of the uh, members of the Casira family. Uh, just a little uh, preview. Into, that's okay. This is fine. No, uh, this is good. A little preview into the future. Uh, when Hitler comes into power, as early as 1920, as we shall see. He's got his eye on the Caceres. And fortunately, they're wealthy enough that wealthy ones are able to leave. Uh, but not all Caceres are wealthy, and quite a few Caceres died in the camps. Uh, but just want to mention one other Caceres that is very, very interesting uh, for our purposes. The man with the amazing hair. <laughs> he, he looks like that guy, uh, the day the earth stood still, Right, right? Uh, anyway, I think, anyway. Um, well, anyway, he looks like a science fiction character with his hair, but that, that, that was his hair. He just kept it poofed up like this, which is quite amazing. This is Ernst Cassira. Now, Cassira is an academic, and he's one of the most brilliant philosophers of the 20th century. I have read everything he ever wrote, which tells you he's not hard to read. <laughs> and he's a neo-Kantian, uh, at the beginning of the 21st century. And he gets a job in Hamburg as a professor. And he begins to work uh, with the Wahlbergs, uh, Max and Abby. Now, as you know, Abby Wahlberg created this extraordinary library. Uh, uh, you know, under Hitler, it had to move, and it's still in London uh, today. It's at the Courtauld. And this is a library uh, where you put books together thematically. Uh, it wasn't, you know, alphabetical order. It wasn't by numbers. It was by theme. So if you read A, then you'd naturally want to read B and C and so forth and so on. And also, 
at the Institute uh, is Erwin Panofsky, the one with the glasses on the end. He is an art historian, and he was the one that came up with iconography, the meaning of symbols. And under his influence, which went two ways, Ernst Cassira began to produce a series of volumes on symbolic form, because we are symbol makers, are we not? So here we have a philosopher on one hand dealing with the making of symbols and an art historian on the other hand decoding what symbols meant and in the middle is this amazing library that will tell you everything. So just a little aside, uh, this is Richard uh, who is another professor. This was, uh, he's also painted uh, by Lieberman who painted huge numbers of uh, the Cassira family. Now, uh, this is Paul Cassira, uh, and he is the art person. He starts this Kunstsalon along with Bruno, uh, who wants to publish uh, uh, art writers, uh, texts on art. They, they want to support avant-garde art uh, as publishers and as dealers. And he is very daring. He, he learns a bit of strategy from Schutte. Uh, he opens his gallery with a show of 18th century English painting. Don't worry, people, all is well. And then he starts seeding his exhibitions uh, with very cutting edge avant-garde French art, including Cezanne, watercolors watercolors, which was so radical. And he shows them in 1904. This is way before Cezanne uh, uh, gets his retrospective in Paris. Uh, so Bruno uh, is uh, the publisher. And he is going to support a lot of the art historical writing that is going to be done about the avant-garde French modern art. And that writing is going to be done in Germany because no one in France is writing about this stuff. So it's the Germans who are going to uh, lay the intellectual foundations for French avant-garde art, and they're going to be published by Bruno Cassira. Uh, so these are uh, rich people, and they live in the Tiergarten. The Tiergarten is the place to live if you're wealthy in Germany. We can go ahead, I think we might. Uh, okay, here's some of his publications. Okay, uh, and fine, thank you so much. Uh, they, they have their uh, home and headquarters in uh, Vic, Victoria Strasse, uh, which is in the Tiergarten. Now the Tiergarten is uh, where Embassy Row is. It's where all of the poshest, poshest homes in Berlin are, including all of the embassies from all of the countries all over the world in this park setting full of trees, absolutely beautiful. The homes are occupied almost exclusively by Jewish owners, one of the first of which was the Walshaw. So this is a beautiful neighborhood. It's just exquisite. The people of Berlin love it. They love the parks. They love the trees. And uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, place to visit briefly uh, for the future. So if we could go ahead one. This is, their, this is the Kunstsalon. Uh, it was uh, decorated by Henry Vandeville. 
Uh, the Belgium uh, designer, uh, as you can see, uh, very spare, very sparse, gray walls, uh, just a couple of lines of paintings if they were small, one line of painting if it was large, everything is selective. You come in, it's a small exhibit, you're not overwhelmed. Instead, this is an art dealer who understands that the role of the art dealer is to educate the public, explain the art to the public, introduce the art to the public, slowly, surely, over time. So this is the tear garden where this gallery was located, a beautiful, wonderful place to come. This is the way it looked. This is a secession artist. We'll talk about the secession in a minute, uh, who's painting uh, the tear garden in its heyday. Absolutely gorgeous. But the tear garden has another destiny. When the Nazis take over, they want to do two things. One, ex you know, just take over Jew uh, Jewish property. So they move the Jews out of the tear garden. So two, they can turn the tear garden into Germania, uh, the fantasy city of Albert Speer and Hitler that's going to rival Paris. Uh, so they're you know, planning on just digging it up. And in one of the buildings is the site where this plan to euthanize individuals who are in some way disabled. Society doesn't want them, society doesn't need them, so let's just get rid of them. As you know, this euthanasia program, known as T4, because it was dreamed up in the tear garden of all places, was the prelude to the Holocaust. Today, uh, as you can see, uh, the tear garden is totally brand new because it was bombed to oblivion by the Allies. Also keep in mind that Reichstag was there. And today, there's a memorial to the people who were euthanized in this T4 program dreamed up at the Tear Garden. Also, very close is uh, the monument to the European Jews by Peter Eisenman uh, that is there uh, as well. And uh, for the next one, thank you, Ari. Uh, to commemorate all the Jews who are no longer there, there are these stumbling stones. And uh, this is, this is uh, a, a commemoration. You may have gone to Little Tokyo and you may have seen the little blast brass plaques in the sidewalk that talk about the uh, Japanese families who uh, are no longer there because of you know, what Roosevelt did. Same idea, except um, very intense. These are stumbling stones. They are placed where a Jewish home used to be. You've probably seen these and it tells you the fate of each and every person that was living uh, in this home. This is a project of Gunter Denning, uh, which you can also find in the Tiergarten. Thank you, uh, Ari. So here you have uh, wealthy uh, individuals who are going to support uh, 
contemporary art, and why not? Uh, there's a very healthy economy going on. Uh, people want to buy the art. They want to support the arts because they are Jewish patrons and they cannot patronize where the aristocracy is guarding. So the aristocracy is not guarding this territory so they can come into this territory and they can patronize uh, these artists. Because of the changes of Impressionism, uh, the main Berlin establishment where artists exhibit is becoming a place of discontent. And you begin to have more and more artists who are saying, oh, I can't do this anymore. It's out of date. We need to leave. We need to form our own association. Now, to set up the Berlin uh, secession, uh, which is what happens, uh, is not necessarily a political act. These are artists who just want to be shown under circumstances where the art can be seen, instead of in this mob scene where all these huge numbers of paintings uh, are. So the Berlin secession, it secedes from uh, the main uh, Berlin Artists Association, and it forms its smaller group of progressive artists who want to do modern art, who are impacted uh, by Impressionism. And it's headed by Max Liebermann. Now, Liebermann is an interesting person to head this group. First of all, he's 50. He's at mid-career. Uh, the German state uh, recognizes him, rewards him, celebrates him, which is remarkable because he's Jewish. But he says, nope. I want to start and I want to lead this new group. And he does so. So he calls up this other wealthy family, uh, Paul and Bruno Cassera, and he says, join me in the succession. The Caceres see an opportunity and they come in. And they are part of the committee that begins to organize the secession and their exhibitions. Now, here you have uh, some of these organizing uh, committees. Uh, these are gentlemanly looking people, well-dressed. Every now and then you see Paul or Bruno Cassira uh, in, these, in these images. Uh, but what they're doing is they are supporting uh, this whole new way of making art. Uh, and what they uh, are, uh, because they're uh, very wealthy, uh, they are more than willing to work for the secession for free. All they want is control. Okay, fine. They get control. Uh, now, in terms of Bruno, no problem. Bruno's a publisher. Paul is a whole different thing. He is very controlling. He doesn't play well with others, but never mind. He knows uh, what he's doing. So this is the site uh, of the secession uh, right here. And um, the issue that begins to percolate vis-a-vis uh, -vis the secession and these artists uh, is, of course, it's going to be anti-Semitism. Now, anti-Semitism is a new term. It came into being in 1879. And if you um, read uh, into uh, this particular part of history, um, it is uh, to be distinguished just from ordinary uh, I hate Jews to anti-Semitism, which is a political anti-Jewish statement with political and government import, not necessarily an emotional uh, reaction. So 
coming into being uh, in 1879. Uh, it gives people uh, this rallying point uh, because uh, you have these uh, alien elements uh, coming in uh, to German society. And uh, the, the people who are supporting these alien elements are being noticed. And as we know, uh, this is going to have tragic controversy, tragic consequences later on, but never mind. Here we are at the beginning of the 20th century. So the Berlin succession establishes itself in 1898. The Caceres are in charge, Max Lieberman is in charge, and all uh, will be uh, well. Uh, you have the publishing house, you have the gallery, everything uh, is thoroughly uh, organized. This particular organization, the secession, uh, will go on successfully for a very, very long time uh, until you get to about 1910, between 1910 and 1914. And then you begin to get a whole new crop of artists that are gonna come in, and as we shall see at the end, they're going to begin to disturb the waters that have been so carefully cultivated by Max Lieberman and uh, the Caceres. So once again, you get a sense of who's who. Uh, Lois, Lois Corinth uh, is a, a very um, conservative uh, painter vis-a-vis -vis the secession artist. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I am not a, a Lovis Corth fan, but I do like Lieberman's work. His work is absolutely uh, beautiful. So these are uh, the movers and the shakers, and Corinth eventually takes over as head of the secession, and so forth and so on. However, uh, one of the most interesting things uh, that Paul Cassira does is to bring to the attention of the art world in Germany, not just Impressionism, but also Vincent van Gogh, who is at this point in time quite unknown. And uh, to have van Gogh in Germany is very important because when you look at all the early exhibitions of Vincent van Gogh, almost none of them are in France, almost all of them are going to be in Central Europe and in Northern Europe. Uh, so it is Cassira, both of them, who are going to support uh, this effort uh, for uh, the avant-garde artist. Now, Bruno sets up this beautiful magazine it's called Kunst und Kunstler, uh, and it has these amazing reviews and scholarly articles and what have you. For example, one of the people he publishes is uh, Jules uh, Leclerc. Now, Leclerc is one of the first people to write seriously about Impressionism. And his writings about Impressionism really lay the foundation for Impressionist scholarship that still exists today. Uh, he talks about the Impressionist eye. And he talks about how the Impressionists see light as color and color as light. And that is de rigueur, uh, even today, for understanding Impressionism. As discussed by Leclerc in Kunst und Künstler, published by Bruno uh, Cassira. So it is going to be not just 
Bruno, who publishes book after book after book on the Impressionist and Vincent van Gogh, laying the foundations for scholarship of avant-garde art, is also going to be Paul. Now, uh, Paul uh, is very closely associated uh, with Julius Meyer Graf. Now, Julius Meyer Graf lives in Paris. Now, there's a reason for that. You can consider Julius Meyer Graf one of the first modern historians of modern art, period. He's living in Paris because the emperor doesn't want him in Germany. He offended the emperor by starting a magazine called Pan, not to be confused with the magazine called Pan that was started by Paul Cassera. Uh, and his magazine offended the emperor and the forces of the power and majesty of the German government just moved in on Julius Meyer Graf and shut him down and sent him packing. So he is back and forth to Germany. He is allowed to come home, but it's inhospitable terrain for him. Nevertheless, he comes back and he writes the first important monograph on Vincent van Gogh. Not only that, but he lays the foundation of the provenance of Vincent van Gogh and works on van Gogh for years and years and years. Keep in mind, the German government hates him. They hate him. They consider him an enemy of Germany, and he's also targeted specifically because he is Jewish. However, uh, the Caceres are um, in the business of educating. So you go to their gallery and you get lectures, uh, you get performances. Uh, it's a place for intellectual growth and development uh, in the avant-garde uh, art world. Uh, so they also, particularly Paul, he allies himself to all of these French art dealers. He allies himself to Paul Duard Duel, uh, Ambroise Voulard, to Bernard Jaune. He's back and forth to Paris. He's very aware of what's going on there. And so they, uh, the French galleries and the German galleries in Berlin, particularly Cassera, uh, form an alliance, a partnership because the French galleries in Paris have merchandise to move and they send it to Cassera and he can move the merchandise. Keep in mind, that he does so slowly, carefully, educating the art audience in Berlin so that this uh, can happen. Now, uh, it, there are some interesting stories told uh, by Ambroise Voulard. If you go in and read his biography, he will tell you I've got a nice quote for you here. Um, he says, the French will not buy avant-garde modern art. They will not buy the Impressionists. They just will have none of it. However, he says, you go to Berlin and you look at people like Cassira, this is where the Impressionists are being sold. So this is you know, in the early part of the 20th century. And, and he is saying, who comes to the Hotel uh, Drouot? This is where all the art auctions are held. It's the Germans. They come in, they buy, they take the stuff back to Germany. The French are having none of this. Now, because of this, neglect 
of avant-garde art, it is going to be up to Paul Cassera to be the one, one of the few, who rescues Vincent van Gogh. When we think about van Gogh, uh, we understand that there are few people in the art world that could have lived and died in complete and total obscurity like Vincent van Gogh. He was very marginal. He saw one painting in his lifetime, famously. He was not mentally stable. Uh, he was supported by his brother, Theo, um, who loved him and uh, took care of him. And, and when he died, uh, that could have been it. Uh, his work could have been packed up, put in the closet, stuck in an attic, and no one would have remembered crazy old Vincent. However, Vincent was very lucky. And I just want to make the point in passing that if you are an avant-garde artist in France and no one likes you, you are lucky if someone rescues you. And these people are going to be rescued by the art dealers. The person who rescued Vincent van Gogh was his sister-in-law, Johanna. Johanna had been married to Theo for about two years. And six months after Vincent died, Theo dies. And all of a sudden, here's Johanna with a young child who has inherited all of Theo's stock and all of Vincent's art. It's a huge responsibility. Instead of saying, no one likes this guy, no one likes the art, I'm just going to put it in the attic and, you know, forget it. She brings this collection together leaving some paintings behind in Paris with Pierre Tonguet, who you see here, and she goes back home uh, to Holland with this large cache of Vincent van Gogh's. And now she has to figure out what to do with it. She's going to very carefully and selectively exhibit this work with people that she trusts, and she's very difficult to work with. Uh, she trusts Paul Cassira. She dealt a little bit with Amboise Voulard, but Voulard, when he sold a couple of Van Goghs, did not give her the money promptly. And Joanna was like, nope, I'm not going to deal with this guy. So uh, even though Voulard loved Van Gogh, Johanna wasn't interested in dealing with him. She dealt with Paul Cassira because he knew Jules Leclerc. And Leclerc knew uh, uh, friends of Vincent. So there's this network that he's part of that Johanna trusts. And so she says, OK, uh, let's send art to Paul Cassira. So the Vincents arrive in Berlin, and it's very early. It's 1901. Keep in mind, he's been dead about 20 years. No one in France has a clue who he is. No one will look at his art. No one will buy it. And here, Cassira is entrusted with Vincent van Gogh. And he proceeds to try to A, sell Vincent, a slow and arduous process, and B, set up a legacy, a foundation of scholarship on Vincent van Gogh. So this is a long, slow process. 
Now this particular painting is uh, the first Van Gogh that enters into uh, the uh, collection uh, in, a, uh, in a German museum. Uh, it's the first one uh, to enter in. It was purchased by a Berlin collector and then it's put in uh, to a German museum in 1902. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, this is another one uh, that uh, belonged, uh, the Cassira uh, reputation, excuse me, the Cassira uh, collection. So he shows him very carefully in 1901, okay, a little bit of action, and he waits because it's really hard to sell. And he shows him again about 1903, and uh, here, uh, very, very gradually, uh, he begins to sell uh, a few things. And um, it is uh, the opinion of Jules Meyer Graf. Uh, Van Gogh was the Christ of modern art. He created for many and suffered for many more. Uh, whether he is or can be the savior, that will depend upon the fate of the younger generation. So we are looking at beautiful Vincents. This is the creme de la creme. Beautiful, beautiful Vincents that are very carefully, very slowly being released here and there with the greatest of discretion by Johanna. And they are released not in Paris, but in northern sites. And to not get too far ahead of the game, because I am aware what my time how are we? <laughs> have, have I gone over? Yeah. Nobody tells me anything. I am so sorry. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> I've been given five minutes. I will uh, push on. Uh, so uh, she uh, makes sure uh, that his work is shown where it is going to be appreciated, but it's seen in ways that no one could have anticipated because this younger generation that is looking at it. And this younger generation is hungry. They're longing for something that is not Impressionism. If, as uh, Leclerc says, Impressionism is uh, the eye, it's perception, it's what you see, it's light and color, then the newer generation thinks, is this not somewhat superficial? We want something more, something deeper, something that is more inward, something that is more expressive. This term will become uh, part of the art history Kant uh, later on, uh, but this is it's fulfilling a yearning, a need uh, for uh, other uh, artists who are coming along. So it is part as Paul Cassera and Julius Meyer Graf who situate Vincent Van Gogh as part of the canon of modern art. And again, everything that I am showing you is from the Cassera uh, collection. Volar again speaks up, and he says. I was in the gallery one day, minding my own business, and an art dealer was beside himself. He came in and he was yelling at me, the nerve of some people. I had an enthusiast considering a crook 
this is the name, the title, uh, A Painting of a Cook, okay, uh, by Joseph Bale. And this fellow came and offered to sell me a canvas by someone called Van Gogh, a landscape within the sky, a multicolored moon, which looked like a spider's web. Just the thing to keep the customers coming back. So Rullard is like, here's this art dealer that hates Vincent and still, uh, but never mind, uh, Vular goes on and he says, um, selling a Cezanne, even worse than Van Gogh, the boldest could not manage to stomach his painting. How could anyone be surprised by the general public's resistance and the most liberated of artists, like Renoir and Cezanne, could be seen, one reproaching Van Gogh for his exoticism and the other telling him, quite honestly, your painting is mad. So this is the French and their opinion of Vincent. Uh, but never mind, uh, here we have in the, um, in the uh, Potz, uh, Potsdamer Strasse, this is the center of art market in Berlin. All the art galleries that were anything were right here in the heart of Berlin doing a brisk business in avant Guard art, and it is this growing acceptance of Vincent van Gogh, thanks to Paul Cassirer, that blows up the art world in 1911. This is the work of Karl Wienen, nice artist. Who can complain? He's an academic artist. He's going to complain about the uh, invasion of all of this avant-garde art that is coming in is destroying German art, and he causes this huge controversy, and he issues this printed protest against people like uh, Paul Kassir and his ilk, people who support that kind of art. Okay, thank you, Ari. Uh, so the uh, contemporary artists, and there are beginning to be more and more of them in Berlin, right back. They strike back, and they publish their responses to Wienen. And uh, so he's complaining about the invasion, and uh, the artist said, no, no, uh, you're, you're behind the times. You know, we're supporting uh, modern art. Here's a, here's a Cezanne watercolor. Look at that. It's gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful. And Cassera writes his own response to Vienna, and he said, why do I have to speculate with French paintings? Tell me that, Herr Verin. Why not as easily as German works? Wouldn't that have been more pleasant for me? I'll answer the question because I regard bringing French art to Germany as a cultural deed, but even that wasn't the real reason, simply because I loved Manet because I recognized Monet, Sicily, and Pizarro as powerful artists, because Degas was among the greatest masters, and Cezanne, the bearer of a philosophy of life. These were, these were not people who were in, the, in it to make money. They loved the art, they believed in the artists. And so uh, one of the respondents was Franz Marc, uh, who you know, I know we move on quickly. So here you're beginning to see a whole new generation of artists coming into being. De Bruca, De Blair Ryder, they will later be lumped under Expressionism. This is the task of another art dealer, Herbert Walden, who we would not have time to get into, uh, but uh, the secession is wailed by all this, and there are comings and goings, there's resignations, there's rumps, there's new secessions and what have you, and I'm, I would just, you know, move on. Uh, so right at the end, 
just before Akasira uh, says, I'm exhausted by all of this. You know, there's just too much controversy. And he puts on one last big show. And he shows the timeline, the continuity, the relationship. He establishes that there are a number of avant-garde artists, and this people is modern art. It's one of the few, and it's pretty early. Yes, it's after the 1905 and 1910 shows at Grafton, but it's pretty good. Okay, Ari's looking at his watch, okay. Uh, this is Die Brugge in Berlin, blah, blah, blah. He likes Pechstein, the German dealers like Pechstein, the German critics like Pechstein. They don't like Die Brugge. Uh, Kirchner gets angry and dissolves Die Brugge in 1913, uh, so forth and so on move, uh, just quick. This, this is the wife of Paul Cassira. Now, pause for just a minute, because Cassira married the girl the family wanted him to marry. And it did not work out, so he divorced her, and he lived with this actress. Tilly Derrier, and Derrier is beautiful. She's the subject of many artists' works, and eventually they get uh, married. Uh, terrible scandal, but never mind. Thank you, Ari. Uh, so on the eve, in July, of 1914, on the eve of the Great War, Paul and Tilla go to Paris. And Tilla sits for Renoir 15 times in her costume from Pygmalion. She looks magnificent. She looks beautiful. It's a wonderful portrait. Uh, really, one of the best late works by Renoir, right? Beautiful. Uh, so the war breaks out. Cassira is an old guy by now, but he is a patriot. He is going to war. And he does so. He joins up. A couple of years later, having won the Iron Cross, about 1916, he demobs. He realizes he's too old for it. And he begins to publish uh, the Time of War uh, publication, to which a lot of the secessionist artists contribute Prince that are patriotic, that support the war, and voila, something amazing happens. The emperor says, I like these secessionist artists. There is no longer going to be a line between secession art and academic art. All art is welcome in Germany. The French never said that. That is amazing. He does this. War reconciles the warring factions of the art world. However, Cassira comes back and he's like, he's a pacifist. And so uh, we can move on. He be, the, you, you can get a sense of the art that was published. You know, God is on the side of the Germans, of course, of course. He starts producing a pacifist journal called The Picture Man. And, and the Kaiser says, wait a minute, excuse me. <laughs> Pacifism will not go here. So. Cassira lands in jail, has to spend the rest of the war in Switzerland. Okay, thank you, Ari. And his son comes home from the war in 1919 and kills himself. Tilla is just finding him more and more difficult to live with. In 1920, 
He publishes Franz Marc's little postcard paintings that he did during the war. Marc died in 1916, as you know. Also, in 1920, Adolf Hitler says, I see you, Paul Kassir. I see you. Uh, you are a millionaire. You are a socialist, and you're trying to confuse the German people. Kassira did not live long enough to see what Hitler would do. He and Tilla go their separate ways in 1926, and during the divorce proceedings in the lawyer's office, things are not going well. Kassira stands up and says, excuse me. He bows, and he goes to the other room and shoots himself. Um, beautiful. Uh, grave here of Kassira. His wife is buried next to him. Uh, and I should say, uh, we did not get a chance to talk about Walden. <laughs> uh, we did not get a chance to talk about the Tannhausens. The Tannhausens come to Berlin in 1926 and pick up where Kassira leaves off. So there's more to do, but we are way out of time. You have been very kind and very tolerant. I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>